Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Hey, by the book listeners, we're doing something a little different in the feed today. We know a lot of you are interested in not just our show, but in podcasts in general and the podcast industry. That's why so many of you out there so kindly bought my book, so you want to start a podcast. Well, you're going to love the show that we are dropping in our feed today then because it is hosted by Nick Kwa, who is somebody who's been writing about podcasting for many years. You definitely should check out what he's got to say. His newsletter called Hot Pod is a must-read for industry insiders and for podcast fans who just want to know what's up. And now Nick has partnered with LAS Studios to join the fray himself. Here's a clip of Nick's new show. If you like what you hear, listen and subscribe to Servant of Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, just a heads up. Uh, this episode contains references to suicide. Is depression funny? Depression is hilarious. When life is void of meaning and joy, everything is hilarious. You're like, can't believe that I uh, am getting dressed today. <laughs> like, why would I do that when my naked body will be soon returning to the soil anyway? <laughs> do you know what I mean? From Elliot Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. In many ways, my relationship with podcasts began as a mental health exercise. It was years ago. I was living by myself in Chicago. I was deeply unhappy, and I was deeply alone. To ward off loneliness, I would take long walks in the freezing Chicago air, listening to podcasts. I'd listen to people talk and tell stories and interview each other and have a good time. That's how I started really getting into podcasts, as a way to manage my depression. On this episode, I spoke of John Moe, the creator of the hit podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, and a new memoir of the same name. I've always been fascinated with the show. Since his debut in 2016, John has served up interviews with interesting people about depression, mental health, and the most difficult moments in their lives. He's spoken to reporters and drag queens, actors and comedians, athletes and musicians. Recently, he sat down with Daryl McDaniels, otherwise known as DMC of Ren DMC, who spoke about a failed attempt to take his own life. 
We was in Austria or Yugoslavia somewhere. I was going to go jump off the roof at the, the hotel roof. When we was in Japan one time, I went to the fucking um, hardware store by myself, but I didn't go with a translator, so the man behind the counter didn't know what the fuck. I, I need rat poisoning. I want to kill her. So then, when I say I'm really going to kill myself, this what happens. I say, okay, if I kill myself, people going to know the Run DMC story. They're going to know what me running Jay did, first to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover of Rolling Stone. Everything that hip-hop is doing. It's because of me running Jay and what we did to represent this beautiful culture. But they don't know about Daryl, the little boy who's no different from any other little boy or girl on the face of the earth. Heavy and human, hard and revealing. When I listen to the podcast over the years, I've often thought to myself, man, I wish I had this back in Chicago. So I asked John where he came up with the idea to do a show like this. Whenever I would talk about mental health and depression and suicide on Twitter, I got a tremendous response. And most of my Twitter is dad jokes and Black Sabbath references. Like it's not, <laughs> it's, it's pretty. There's a big overlap between the two. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty lowbrow and, uh, you know, like it, I always say Twitter is just a, a valve on my brain that I just let the thoughts out on through typing. Um, so <laughs> nothing's ever all that considered. It just kind of plops out, um, which is a big tonal shift when I started talking about mental health issues. And I just got this enormous response, like from tweets of people saying, hey, uh, what you said inspired me and made me want to make an appointment with a therapist. And I did. And I kept it this time. And things are going great. Thank you for for tweeting that. And I'm like, tweeting that? Like that thing took me <laughs> five seconds to type. And this difference that it's having. So it's just this incredible response. And at the same time, I knew a lot of comedians and musicians. So when, when Wits, the variety show I was doing, got canceled, I was like, okay, well, what what's in the cupboard here? Like, what, what, uh, what can I make dinner with? <laughs> you know, what ingredients <laughs> do I have? And it sort of seemed to line up nicely to talk about mental health, given that when I did, it seemed to go over big. And I had all these friendships, really, or at least acquaintanceships with a lot of uh, creators, entertainers. And, you know, there there are like a handful of radio shows that become consistent hits. Like, I think the list is like over the last 20 or 30 years, This American Life, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Radio Lab. Those are really, I mean, there are other shows on the air and I've hosted them, but those are the hits. And so it's really hard to, to break into it and get all those stations to carry it and get sponsorship and get good time slots. And the, the podcast, I thought, you know, this is a really narrow idea that I have, but that's what podcasting is for. And, and I saw it as a chance to like take these tools that I had and work with a tremendous amount of freedom for the first time. So I... I kind of had the idea and pitched it internally at APM and it really caught on. Like people really just latched onto it to me to a surprising degree because I did think it was a sort of weird idea. I thought it might work. It might be a total disaster because you're asking comedians to talk about like definitionally the least funny thing in the world. Yeah. And so I pitched it and then we... You know, there was enough interest to do a pilot, so we made a pilot with Patton Oswalt, and then um, we 
found a sponsor, and then we were off to the races. Was the concept for the show always the same? Like, I mean, my understanding is that you start every, almost every episode is sort of thesis, right? Like, do you yeah. do you find depression funny? Which is yeah. really, it, it's still, you know, quietly a provocative question, but right. it, it also feels like a, it feels like a journey in a, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, when when I started the show, when I started thinking about the show, the idea was why are so many comedians depressed? Do depressed people, are depressed people more likely to be comedians or does comedy make people depressed? And it quickly became clear that it was unanswerable because there's some people who say, yeah, it's just because comedians can talk about this. There are no more depressed comedians than there are depressed dentists, but if your dentist was talking about suicidal ideation, it would be bad for their business. Whereas <laughs> if a comedian does, it's it's part of the job. But then other people said, no, you know, depressed people see the world in a different way and they are they are sharp about observing the absurdity of it. And so comedy is a thing that they gravitate to. So there was kind of a, a difference of of take on that. But what I discovered pretty quickly was that they were really good at describing it. And it's a hard thing to describe. Hmm. And when they describe it in a resonant way, then people relate to it. And pretty soon you're part of a community and you're not just sort of suffering alone in silence. And so that, that focus kind of shifted after the initial idea. But before you got to that point where the show's out and it starts hitting its community, um, you mentioned that the station had a lot of sort of excitement around the show. Yeah, was it difficult to just to even just get out the ground? Like, was that was it difficult to sell ads against or, or just to build a model around it? Well, I think, I think APM saw the same thing that was happening around the country and that and that I had seen, which was that there was a hunger to talk about this thing. There was a, a shift going on, in the same way like with littering in the seventies and drunk driving in the eighties, people just said, let's, you know, let's get better about this. Let's, let's change things. And there was a real hunger to talk about it. And then like it was being talked about more among well-known people. I mean, that, that all started, I think with Dick Cavett in the 1970s, who was on our first season of our show. And so mental health had already been identified by APM as an area that they really wanted to put some muscle behind that and water like global water issues. And so it fit really well with that. And at the same time, there's a company in the twin cities called health partners, which is a, a healthcare provider and an insurance company. And the company had been looking to do some partnerships with them. And so when we made the pilot, I met with them, me and a few other people from the company and they had this website, makeitokay.org, which was this really cool website that was all about destigmatizing mental health, promoting conversation. Um, they had talking points, like how to approach someone when you're concerned. And they had stories about like individual stories that kind of traced how these things evolve. It wasn't just depression, it was all sorts of things. Hmm. And they had this great website. They couldn't get enough people to go to it. They had bus ads and billboards and nothing really goosed the traffic like they wanted. And so they had this fund for community support and community awareness. And what I wanted to do with the show matched up with what they were doing with Make It Okay. Just the Venn diagram looked like a circle. So they sponsored us right out of the gate, which kind of gave us some wiggle room in terms of underwriting and in terms of generating money in other ways. And it also let me 
get on an airplane to go out to Hollywood and talk to some of these people in their homes and in their offices. Mm. So that was a, a real serendipitous kind of arrangement. And we still have a very close partnership with them. It's, it's kind of a unique thing because they have nothing to do with the content of the show. Like everybody agreed on that right away. Like there's, there's going to be a wall, but it's sort of more like I go out and do events with them and we talk to them all the time. So it's, it's more of a, a partnership than a sponsorship. John Mose had a long career in public radio. And for the podcast, I wanted to know whether he primarily pulled from that experience or whether he looked somewhere else for inspiration. I think I took a lot from Mark Marin because, you know, sort of about the mental health stuff, but like Mark Marin and, and Howard Stern will just ask the blunt questions without worrying about like, you know, without apologizing beforehand or without, you know, kind of tiptoeing through it, they'll just, they'll just smash right in and people tend to answer them. And that, that's what I really noticed is that if they've agreed to be on the show, then they kind of know what's coming. And if I don't make the question scary, then they probably won't respond like it's scary. And that worked out really well. Hmm. I, th- I think a lot of it is after being in radio as long as I had been, seeing people just being comfortable with the narrow range of topic and the drilling down was was really inspirational. And, and you know, I could get that from a music podcast or a basketball podcast or a lot of other things that I was listening to where, you know, if you're going to talk about Carl Malone, you don't have to do the <laughs> the, the radio <laughs> thing of... Carl Malone was a basketball also known player. As the- <laughs> yeah, he was known as the mailman, and here's why. Um, you know, you just talk about it, and the people who are listening to you get the reference already, and yeah. then you're free to just drill down. I, this is one of the things I've been perpetually fascinated by, because even the two examples that you had, like Mark Maron on the one hand, Howard Stern on the other, there's this sort of sense with, with something like Maron and podcasting in general is the thing that you're talking about, the whole the narrower you, you get, the more you're allowed to be yourself almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about like Stern, probably possibly not these days, but especially in his earlier like part of his career where the very fact of his personalness is yeah. the thing that makes him the shock chock. Yes. It's like, what, what is this? It feels like this sort of like um, embarrassment over the, the personal, like in, in sort of broadcast culture. Yeah, I mean, I've got all the respect in the world for for a lot of the things Howard Stern does, I've never been a fan. I've never been a listener because some of it makes me uncomfortable. Some of it, the awkwardness of it, and I, I can't relax into it. Um, hmm. And I think with, with Marin, I heard him doing it in a more empathetic way and doing it about things that you could tell matter to him. Like Howard Stern can have anybody on the show and ask those questions. I don't get the sense that he's very personally invested in any of it. And so, especially when I started the show and I had a lot of people on the first season who were, who were friends of mine or acquaintances of mine talking about things that I had also been through, I, was, I have always really put my heart in it. Like, you know, when someone's talking about some of these tough times, I might not have been through something identical to that, but I've been through something similar. And so I kind of connect with that. I think the other thing that that comes from it is... Before I was ever in radio, I was an actor for many years. Hmm. And 
what you're trained to do there is give your attention to your partner and go off the cues that they give you. And you, you have your, the, the lines you got to say, the situations that you're in, but you're a human responding to another human ultimately. And I've tried to carry that over to, to interviewing. And so if somebody is, is, you know, telling a funny story about something that happened with their mental health, I'm probably having fun along with them. And if they're talking about some real dark stuff, I'm down there too. And I'm thinking in those terms in that moment. I mean, that's one of the reasons when I'm done with an interview, I'm completely spent. I often need to go take a nap because <laughs> it's, it's an incredible emotional journey just to be the interviewer in that situation. Yeah. Do you, is there like a collective weight that you feel like, um, because it does sound what you just said there. It's like with each interview, you're, you're giving a lot of yourself in that situation. Yeah. I, I imagine that's different from sort of earlier parts of your broadcasting career. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I've done, I've been a producer, I've been a newscaster, I've been a reporter. Um, hmm. when I did all those things, really my, my focus was on, how is this going to technically sound? And then what information can I get across in what is invariably a very short amount of time? Um, so it's economy of language and it's, it's a, it's a puzzle. almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely solving a puzzle. I used to use that analogy when I did a, a four and a half minute tech show once a day for marketplace, you know, like how can I get all this in, in 13 seconds? What preposition can I lose? What adjective can I lose? And so, so this was a, a different thing right away when, you know, I didn't have to worry about the clock. I didn't have to worry about swear words. I didn't have to worry about a lot of things that I used to. And it really just let me lean into, in the interview, extracting the story, extracting the story in its full depth and color. And then in editing and assembling the show, using the parts that define the fundamental arc and putting it in the clearest relief I possibly could hmm. so that the listener would have the same illumination that, that I found in the interview. Hmm. Um, I, I, I want to sort of unpack the, the, that sort of post-production process yeah. a little more, but before that, um, so I'm curious, like when you are done with these interviews and then you find yourself spent like, do you have like a self-care routine that happens <laughs> afterwards? Like what, what's the decompression like? Um, I just, I let it be. I don't try to expel it. Um, you know, I might, depending where I am, I might go get a lovely cup of coffee or, <laughs> or a sandwich. <laughs> um, you know, I might, I might nap. I usually don't, but I, I just sort of have to let it sit for a while. And when we do it in the APM headquarters, like if I've been in a studio there, hmm. we'll get through the interview. And then at the end, Chrissy and I will talk about, okay, what stood out for you? What's And that's Chrissy, your producer. Yeah. Like, what's the part that you're going to go home and tell your family about this amazing thing that this person said? Because that's probably something you want to keep and maybe build around. We'll have the debrief and then she just sort of leaves me alone in terms of like, you know, got to go voice this underwriter. You got to write the web copy. Um, <laughs> so we kind of just rest for a while and then I can resume getting back to it. So there's like no like pump up music or no or you watch it, put on an episode of Parks and Records. No, I, I don't try to do that. I try to just let it sit. And, you know, it actually gives me a lot of clues about how to, to form the episode after, you know, after the editing process is done, like, like what, what stood out and what was 
surprising. And I kind of just let that sit for a while and, and then maybe watch some Bigfoot videos on YouTube because that <laughs> always helps everything in my life. Yeah. That's the Pacific Northwest yeah, that's right coming yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So when you sit down and you kind of like think through the arc of these interviews, mm-hmm. um, what is the shape you're looking for? Like, what are the sort of main components to build around in the initial run of, of thinking back through an interview? Um, I'll generally listen to it all the way through and then just like, you know, while I'm playing poker on my phone or something, like I, I try to do something else with my eyes and my hands so I'm not checking email and, and not paying attention to the interview. I try to avoid words. <laughs> um <laughs> And so I'll listen to it once, maybe twice. And then my process, which I just kind of didn't learn from anywhere. I just sort of came upon it is I'll start separating out the interview, the raw tape into beats of like, okay, this is the junior high section. And this is the part about when he was a shoe salesman. So I'll I'll label it in all caps, each of those beats. I'll, I'll do like little micro cuts on the tape on Pro Tools and label that cut shoe salesman, junior high, you know, breaking with mother, whatever, whatever it is. And, um, and so then I start to kind of see the bones of like the chronology. And if I got to something about childhood late in the interview is something that I can slide back into the first part of the tape and have it be smooth. Would it need a transition? Does it not fit at all? And then usually by then something is kind of emerging that either has been talked about or has been implied or something that keeps coming up. And then I'll, I'll sort of weigh that against the public interest in this person. So an mm-hmm. example, we have a, an episode with Stephen Page from the Bare Naked Ladies. Well, I had this memory. I realized that, that suicidal ideation had been a part of my life for as long as I could remember. And I I, ha- I, real- I remembered walking home from school one day and, uh, well, probably many days, but I remember specifically one day of walking home from school and imagining the knife I was going to get out of the kitchen knife drawer. Um, and I was probably six. Um, and I, it, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that it kind of dawned on me that that's not how everybody thinks, um, that that wasn't the normal way a six-year-old's brain should work. I mean, awareness of suicide is one thing um, or being upset about something, but just having, you know, have the idea of having a plan. Thankfully, I know now that knife was super dull. My mom never had sharp knives. The thing that, that I thought about while listening to Stephen being suicidal at age six and, you know, all the things, being arrested for cocaine possession and also being a pretty hilarious guy was, oh, okay, there's, there's two levels here. You know, there's uh, One Week is a great song, but it's ultimately about the collapse of a relationship, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And Pinch Me is a song that he brought up, which is a song about depression that he made Ed sing because he was more comfortable not singing it himself because it was such a heavy song. And it's a, it's a pop song. You know, and I, and I even say in the episode, like, hold on, Pinch Me is a funny song. There's an underwear joke in it, and someone runs through the sprinkler in their gym shorts. That is a fun song about summer. Um, 
but then you know you listen to it and i point this out in the in the podcast episode there's also the lines i feel fine enough i guess considering everything's a mess and talking about leaving town and nobody would notice that i'm not around like it's a really bleak song and so the sort of two levels that he would operate on was really telling and so he would be everybody's favorite party band hmm. but then if you pay attention to what he's really saying uh he's doing things on the same level and they're both truthful to steven he's you know he's like no i i do like having fun with my friends but then there's also this so that to me was the most telling thing about it and especially because that is something that if you think you know that band maybe there's a darker deeper side to them and i think people would appreciate knowing about that that's something people might not have thought of or you know mike berbiglia is on our show and he says i've never been diagnosed as depressed but he also talks about this persistent obstacle of an inability to feel joy <laughs> and you know and he talks about it in almost all of his shows but doesn't elaborate and i'm like okay What's going on with Mike Birbiglia? I think that at a certain point, I had this uh, understanding of of my own existential dread. Uh, just this idea of like, well, there's, you know, you know, there's not much we can do. Yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to die. It's going to be either instantaneous and soon, or it's going to be in Protracted 40, and 50 horrible. years yeah. Yeah, from now, and they'll uh, have some decline to it. And... um and I feel like I, that's something I, I, you know, I feel like I can't get that out of my head. And I think it's part of what makes me a comedian mm-hmm. because I think about that. And I think that part of, the, part of the job of a certain type of comedian is like, like what the kind of stuff I do is, is to take the darkness and, 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 and break it open and find the humor in it mm-hmm. so that people themselves can see the humor in it. Uh, because I think laughter is a great coping mechanism for uh, a lot of darkness that that surrounds us at all times. And that became a show really about how depression is a term that is sometimes just used for insurance purposes. Like all you're talking about with depression, you can call it that or you can call it something else. You're talking about a dark tendency that is an obstacle in your life. And beyond that, it's semantics and nomenclature, what, you know, however you want to go about that. But that really became what that show was about. And so I try to, I try to tell the person's story and use the insight that I've gleaned from their story and from all these other dozens of interviews I've done. This is neither here nor there, but I'm reminded that the word for inability to feel joy is anhedonia. Anhedonia, yes. Which is a beautiful word I for know. something ghastly. I know. It's like gonorrhea. It's just a beautiful word. <laughs> <laughs> In hindsight, gonorrhea is actually a fantastic word. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, has your relationship with um, you know, mental health and, and your depression specifically changed since doing the show or starting the show? Yeah, it has in in a kind of unexpected way. And a lot of that is from the book because after hmm. after the first season, we we won a Webby Award for Best Comedy Podcast, which I, I can only think must have mystified actual comedy <laughs> podcasts. Um, and so we were getting some buzz and my book agent said, you should write a memoir. I said, nobody cares about me. She said, that's depression talking. It'll help people. I said, okay. 
And then after the second season, I struck a deal with St. Martin's Press to write it. And then it was like, well, if I, if I have to write a book about a subject, I better know the subject. And I don't know how well I know me. I better go start figuring that out. And honestly, like through two seasons of the show, my thinking was, well, I've stopped my depression from getting worse. And I think I know where some of it comes from. And so then that's the best I can do. If I can just not get worse until I die, I will have won. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but then I thought, well, maybe I can get better. Maybe it doesn't have to be just not worse. And I got into some good therapy because I also wanted to find out more about how my mind works for myself and for the sake of this book. And I, I got into cognitive behavioral therapy because I researched enough of the modalities and the you know different approaches that I had a good feeling that would work for me. Not everything works for everybody. I thought that would work for me. And it did. And it was amazing and revelatory. So the the show, I think, has given me enough variety of stories in terms of what works for people, what people have tried. You know, I've heard everything from electroconvulsive therapy to ketamine to, you know, a million other things. And it let me kind of see the menu and order what I thought would be good. Hmm. I'm sort of thinking about, um, so I just re-listened to the Mark Bibilier episode yeah. um, this morning for this. And he talked a little bit about the way he restructured his thinking about his sort of career, his work, is mm-hmm. to contribute something as opposed to be something. Yeah. Do you feel like your work with the podcast and the memoir has been sort of the biggest contribution you had in your life? Or, yeah. or how, how does that settle <laughs> into your, your personal narrative? Yeah, it's it's been, it's a show that I started because my other show had been canceled and I wanted to keep having a job. And so... <laughs> And this seemed like a good topic to have the show about. Now, this topic is what I do with my professional life, and there happens to be a podcast involved. Since the show started, I've been asked to do speeches all over the place. I you know, was hmm. invited to go down to the Carter Center and met with Rosalind Carter down there. Like all these, and writing this book, all these amazing things have happened. And it came at a time, too, where it wasn't just that I was between shows, but I was I was solidly middle-aged, and I was thinking, what am I doing here on the planet? <laughs> I'm not especially religious or even spiritual, so I didn't really believe any, in a you're intended to do this. There's, it's written down in a <laughs> space book. But I thought, well, what, what should I do? What should I do to help people? And, and this seemed like a chance to do that. Just before we launched, about four months before we launched, my wife had an acute appendicitis while we were on a vacation and it perforated. And we're very lucky to have her still with us. And Mm. after that happened, you know, by the time that was like all done, it was fall of 2016. And I thought, geez, we could all go anytime. You know, tragedy is always just around the corner. And so maybe I could just help people carry things. Maybe I could just help with the load of being a person on the planet. It felt like the same sort of relief as when I was finally diagnosed with depression in my mid-30s after having it since seventh grade. 
it gave me a chance to think about my work in something other than what are the download numbers? What are the sponsorship numbers? Where are we on the charts? All these things that I ultimately can't really control mm. and that I was had always had a tendency to misinterpret as a judgment on my own worth, you know? Um, like if a lot of people are listening to the show, that means I am a good boy. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and thinking in a different term, thinking in terms of like, go out there and help people, that's a goal that's much more easily filled and much more generous to the world. So I, I um, was giving a speech at this conference for surgeons and you know, talk about imposter syndrome. What am I going to tell surgeons? And the, the person introducing me was, was from Health Partners. And she said, she talked about what I had done in my career like other shows I had done and other things I'd done. And she used the phrase prior to finding his true calling. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh no, really? <laughs> and so it really, I had the rest of the biography to find my legs again because it really blew my mind. But it is, you know, I mean, who knows what the future holds, but this is, this is what I'd want to do hmm. through this podcast, through other things, through books, through speeches, through, I don't know, folk music, whatever it is, it's, <laughs> it's the thing I want to do. Uh, let's wrap up on a, on a just a uh, lighter sure. note here. Um, what, what podcast are you listening to right now? Um, I always evangelize for Chris Melanthi's podcast on Slate Hit Parade. And I think it's going to the Slate premium dimension now. So that's a Slate plus, uh, it's their membership. Yeah. 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 So I think I'm going to have to do that because I love music and Chris loves music and Chris loves the Billboard charts, and I could not possibly care less about the Billboard charts. But he writes about music using that as a framing device in a way that I think is just brilliant. There's an episode about Elton John and George Michael that he did that was just one of the best podcast episodes of any type I've ever heard. And interestingly, like I've always kind of railed against the the over-rehearsed sounding podcast. And, and Chris definitely has a script he's reading off, but there's an earnestness that comes across that I just adore. And, and, and speaking of embracing things that I've complained about before, like I'll often, uh, without naming any of them, disparage the Hey Guys, What's Up podcasts, the <laughs> three white guys in a room agreeing with each other podcast, but there's a music show called The Well of Sound, and I think it's really under the radar. Matthew Cause from Not A Surf turned me onto it, and it's just this wonderful depth of knowledge about music and joy of music that I really like. So yeah, I've been listening to that. I do have a problem when things just sound shabby and without production values because I'm just an an old cranky man. Well, you're also a uh, broadcasting. I'm professional also a broadcasting <laughs> professional. It's funny, like my my son, who's 19, he's a freshman in college, and he listens to to Chapo and Come Town, and I I can't do it. I just <laughs> like I respect it. It's like Howard Stern. Like I respect it, just can't listen to it. He's like, do you know how much money these guys make? I'm like, yes, I yeah, do. Yeah, it's an absurd <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> And and often when I have time to myself, I it's listening to a podcast after making one all day feels like a bit of a busman's holiday. Yeah, I imagine so. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This was delightful.
Observant Apart is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantapod. Web designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant Apart is a production of Elias Studios. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.